The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I will invite you to the book of what? Hebrews. That's right. Book of Hebrews. You should have that permanently indented in your mind as we do things today. But the book of Hebrews chapter 13, our sermon title today, as it has been for a while, is greater than and with the emphasis on walking alone. Uh, It is greater than walking alone. Well, you made it. Everyone just take take a collective sigh. There's a sigh of relief. We have made it to chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews. You have survived. You've lost some hair and maybe some sleep, or maybe you've gained it during a sermon. I don't know. But regardless, you've gotten this far. And I want to remind you before we get to our opening illustration that the book of Hebrews now, we have spent 12 chapters basically going through doctrine who Christ is, what he's greater than, what the body of Christ is, what a Christian is, all these subpoints we've gone through, who Melchizedek is. We did that last summer. And now we are getting into the devotion side. We have done what we have, we've learned what we need to believe, but now that belief is going to be fleshed out in very practical ways and what we are to do. And I want to tell you before we read our scripture and get in our sermon, those are not separate categories. There are some people today who will say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you love people. It is scary. And on the opposite side, there are some people who say, as long as you have your check marks done on what you believe, it doesn't matter if you love people as long as you check mark your things about God. Why can't we do both? We need high doctrine of who God is, and he's seated on his throne. He sent his son to die for us and all the things we believe because they are stone cold yet warm facts of life. But we also need, as verse 1 will say, let brotherly love continue, Philadelphia love, tender-hearted love. We should be so strong with our beliefs and have a backbone that even, a, uh, even the biggest linebacker couldn't knock it out of us or knock it apart from us. But we need the tender heart of a mother nursing a child, of a doctor caring rightly for a patient. We need both. And today I pray you see that. So if you're able to stand this morning, would you join me as we read verses 1 through 6, Hebrews 13. This is, I will remind you that the book writer of Hebrews back in chapter 11, he said, if only I had more time. And here he is two chapters later, right? And here he is at chapter 13. But he's applying what he has learned, what he has taught them in a sermon-like format to hear. And I want to start actually in chapter 12, verse 29, and we'll read down to verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. For our God is a consuming fire. So verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember, verse 3, those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. So let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge those sexually immoral and the adulterous. So keep your life, verse 5, free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he, that is God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
I'm going to submit to you this morning that the end of chapter 12, remember this is one letter, they didn't have chapters and verses. The end of chapter 12 speaks of the presence of God in a consuming fire. And the end of chapter, uh, verse 6 rather, speaks of him in a comfortness, in, in, in his presence, and he won't forsake you. The presence of God is your motivator, and we'll talk about that today. Will you pray with me this morning, and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for our church. Thank you that we can gather to hear your word. Father, um, uh, pity us if they come to hear whoever's behind this pulpit. It's not about the person. Yet, Lord, you tell us of those behind the pulpit that we are to preach, as it were, to, uh, like a dying man to dying people, as has been well said. So, Father, we come once again to feast on your word. We don't desire milk, Lord, but we desire the, the, the wholeness, the goodness of your word. This isn't just anyone's opinion, Father, as we know. It is your word. For, Father, would you just burn away everything else that can be said today, and may your word rise to the top and show us forth what you want us to hear. Father, we love you, we praise you, most of all, we thank you for Jesus, your Son, our Savior, the resurrected one. We pray in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, many years ago, and this picture on the screen will probably, for some of you, if you know who this is, will send uh, chills down your spine. This is Joseph Stalin, the, the long-tenured leader of long time ago Russia. But the man right behind him was a young boy at one stage. And before communism and World War II, this man, whose name is, goes by the name Nik, Nikita Khrushchev, if I'm saying that correctly, was a man who grew up coming to church. In fact, he lived in the country. And to get the kids to the church, the local parish priest would offer them candy. Brother Dave, I thought of you and, and uh, your illustration about this earlier in the week during prayer meeting. And this Nikita, who's a grown man in the picture, would only come if there was candy. And they would only give him candy if he memorized Bible verses. Nothing ever changes, does it really? It's kind of the same. And he would learn it, and, and he would run away. As soon as he got his candy, he would run away from the priest back to the fields. And he would do this time and time again. And some 60 years later, in the 1950s, Nikita, as I will call him, became the second power, most powerful man in Russia after Joseph Stalin. And looking back on his time during that time, he said something to this degree. He said it was artificial motivation that produced artificial results. He said, I memorized the scriptures for the candy, the rewards, the bribes, rather than the meaning it had for my life. Now, hear me clearly. He's not saying you shouldn't give kids candy if they memorize the Bible. But I want you to know what he hit the nail on. What you are motivated by and what you seek after is often what you will find in this life. Do you see that connection there? And this man was motivated as a young kid, as most of us are, by candy. And he memorized the verses. But this man became one of the most wicked people in the time of Russia, and you can learn about his history some other time. My point is this. As Christians, we are not motivated by simply dangly things that we can be put in front of our eyes. We are motivated, if we're motivated by anything in this world, by God's presence. Why did you come to church this morning? You came to church, sure, to be with people, and that's your routine, but you came because you want to draw nearer to God, most of you. Is that not correct? You desire the presence of God. You're not looking for an artificial presence, something we can conjure up here with lights and stories and all sorts of sappy things. You are looking for the very presence of God. And that is what will motivate you when you are walking alone in this world. In fact, God's presence is not just some distant hope. It is your identity. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. 
Because what motivates us to keep a Christian life is not some reward we get here. It's the reward that he's with us everywhere we go, and he's even inside of us. So what motivates us to keep living a holy life in the midst of a world that has people like this who simply use the Bible as a way to other things? Well, the, word, the big idea this morning is simply this, is that in a world that seems so unstable, God's presence, God's power, and God's promises remain sure. It's not your theological knowledge, it's not your, your maturity that keeps you, but it is God's never-failing presence and power that holds you until death comes. And the most powerful good in your life is to know that you work for a God who never sleeps, he never slumbers, he's always got your back, he's never turning aside from you, he doesn't walk on the other side of the street when you walk on one, he doesn't give you the evil eye, he doesn't point and nag his finger at you, he's on your side. So when the going gets tough, what is your motivation? The presence of God that lives within you and the presence of God that is guiding you and protecting all around you. So this morning, as we look at this end of chapter 13, beginning of chapter 13, end of Hebrews, he's going to give us three things that are the motivating power for God's presence in our life. Three things we can do to keep on living out, to live, to live that holy life in our lives as we seek God's presence, that consuming fire to the one that never leaves us. The first one I want you to see is this, is to live out God's presence in your life, to not be alone. You need to first off serve sacrificially, serve sacrificially. And what he means by this is that we are called, as it were, to let brotherly love continue. You see that there in verse 1. He says, let brotherly love continue. Now, the Bible is clear. We are to love all people, aren't we? We are to love all people. Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies and what church? Pray for them who persecute you. Romans 12 says, feed him and uh, feed him who's your enemy and give him a drink. And, and I love this part, uh, pour burning coals on his head. Uh, that's not an attack. That's actually a, a good thing in the old days. But there's also a special love God has for his people. Romans 9 says that Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Well, that doesn't sound like love to me. Well, there's a special love God has for his people. God chose the nation of Egypt, right? No, he chose which nation? Israel. He also chose certain people to be saved, the elect, and that's a word not to be afraid of. God loves his enemies, and he loves those who are not his people, but he specifically calls us to serve sacrificially with an open hand, with an open hand. Because as we go through this life, and as these believers were going through their life, people were being persecuted. They were losing everything, they were losing their families. They were losing their material possessions. But the one thing they could not lose was the ability to love one another and especially within the body of Christ. As God is with them, they wanted to be there for other people. You notice that word love in verse 1 is a, a Philadelphia love. I thought, man, we should have preached this three weeks ago on Super Bowl Sunday, right? As we were facing those pesky eagles. But he says it's a Philadelphia love. How do you love and serve sacrificially? You remind yourself that love is tender-hearted. Love is always tender-hearted. You might have that in the New King James. It calls it a tender-hearted affection. It's not enough to go through the motions. You need to actually love people. How? With sensitivity, with understanding, with thoughtfulness, with mercy, kindness, patience, gentleness, with warmth. It's a love that Ephesians 4.32 says is to be kind to one another and tenderhearted. 
as God's presence is in your life, you serve sacrificially by how you treat each other. 1 Corinthians 16.20 says you can express love in this way, and I'm not adopting this, but some of you might, and it's a command three times in the scriptures, greet one another with a holy kiss. You can greet me with a holy hug, but don't come to with me with a holy kiss, all right? I love you. But do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying that wherever you see brothers and sisters in Christ, as you are motivated by the presence of God, you're to love them with a tender heartedness. And that's why Spurgeon said, may your convictions be deep, your love real, and your desires earnest. And what he's saying is, is that there should be a sweetness and a tenderness to every one of us. We preach strong and have solid convictions, but we better have our arms open wide to embrace those who are within the body of Christ. It's like a nursing mother with a baby in her arms, how tenderly and warmly she cares for her. Can I just say it again, that we should be the most encouraging place in town. This church should be the most encouraging place in town, wherever you are. That's why the Bible tells us to outdo one another in showing honor and showing love. There are no qualifications here. We are to treat everyone in the body of Christ as Christ would have us uh, treat him. And so we serve sacrificially with an open hand, but notice verse 2, we serve sacrificially with an open home, an open home. There's a general request. He says, let love continue, but he gets a little more specific here. And some of you are curious about the last half of that verse. We'll get there briefly, but verse 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to who? To strangers. Who are these strangers he's talking about? Well, a stranger is someone you don't know. We teach our kids not to walk with strangers, and uh, that's a good lesson. But the strangers here are those that would show up in their towns coming from one city to the next who'd been persecuted. You remember in those days that when persecution got hot and heavy and severe and the affliction continued, they would just go from one town to the next to find a Christian church to worship with. And sometimes they'd get a knock on their door and they didn't know who it was. But at the end of the day, most of those times were people who were looking for safe haven with other Christians because the church they were in was burned or ransacked. They're assuming they're believers because verse 1 says they're brothers, brothers and sisters. But go back to Hebrews chapter 10 for a second. We hold your spot there. Go to Hebrews 10.34. Hebrews 10.34, just about a page or so back, depending on how well, good your eyesight is and how big your font is, I suppose. But he says, actually starting Hebrews 10.32, he says, Recall the former days... When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were treated, mistreated. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What he is telling them, what he's encouraging them, is that they literally have a love for strangers. A love for strangers. Now, I know in our day and age, we need to be safe, we need to be vigilant, but I want to argue today, as you'll see on the screen, that the church, which is God's plan A to reach the world, should be the refuge for the hurting and a safe haven for the oppressed. Now, I want to speak to that broadly for a second. This should be a place that anyone should feel safe in. You should feel safe here at church. If you've been abused or not abused, if your life is okay or not okay, if you're struggling with addiction, if you don't have an addiction, whatever you got, this should be a place you feel at home, where in, in a sense, you can kick up your feet, and, and my, mi casa is su casa. My home is your home. It's really God's home, but you know what I mean. It's a place you feel safe, but it's also one of the greatest evidences we have as a church that we're God's people is that when another 
group of Christians struggles or another church is, is not treating Christians well, that we say, yeah, y'all come on in too. Y'all come on in too. Do you know one of the greatest disproportionate populations that are hurting right now? And I always talk about this to give you perspective, are pastors. You know, our church over the years, we have taken in a number of ministry people. Uh, some of y'all know them. We've sent them out again who were hurt. And I mean that, literally hurt by other churches, by the way they were treated. They were kicked out. They were run out because they preached the word of God. And our church became a safe haven for those Christians. That is one of the greatest ministries we can have here to fulfill these verses. But he says also that we have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, I didn't write down any names as to who I think the angels are in our, our church, but I'll let you figure out who that is. But what he's telling them is, is that just as you can accept anyone to come into your church, especially those in the faith, and take care of them and show hospitality to them and be a refuge for them, so too people in the Old Testament had people come to them they didn't even know, yet they showed hospitality. If they showed hospitality to strangers they didn't know, how much more should we, for people we do know, and even those who are in Christ but yet we don't really know, take them in. For some of you, that may be starting with a simple lunch at your house or dinner at your house or taking someone in. For some of you, God may call you that next step to take someone into your house from our church to have them live with you for a season. Many of you have done that here. The point is, is that as they showed hospitality to them, we are to show hospitality. Are angels lurking in our church today? Yes, they are. Can I see them right now? No, I don't think I can quite yet. But Abraham entertained angels, Lot entertained angels, Samson's parents entertained angels, and everything else. Don't get fixated on the angels. Stay focused on what God has called you to do, and that is to have an open hand and an open home by serving sacrificially. There, did that burst all your bubbles and answer all your questions? No, I know it didn't. But there was a Newsboy song. If you want to go back to 90s Christian music, Brian, I thought of you wherever you are. There was a Newsboy song called Entertaining Angels. And you can listen to bad theology put to Christian music and figure out what it does not really mean or what doesn't it say. There you go. You serve sacrificially by having an open hand when brothers and sisters come. You love them with a Philadelphia tenderhearted love. You love them with an open home. But notice number three, you have an open heart. You serve sacrificially by having an open heart heart. Verse 3 tells you specifically to what group, not just strangers, but specifically, does your Bible say prisoners? You probably have that word there. Verse 3, prisoners. These are people who as uh, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. The word remember there implies that we are keeping them at our forefront. It implies that we are actively remembering those Christians who are suffering for their faith. How many of y'all are familiar with the ministry um, uh, Voice of the Martyrs? Just a show of hands, just curious. Actually, most of you all are. Voice of the Martyrs, uh, grandparents and parents, if you're looking for a show uh, for your kids uh, that is good, and it talks about a lot of these people over the years who've suffered for their faith in prison. Um, I'm looking at my wife. Natalie, what is the show we watch? Truth Seekers? Uh, what is the show we watch? I just... Torch lighters, thank you. I had it in my brain. Torch lighters. If you ever want to watch that, YouTube it. Torch lighters. It, it gives you examples through history of people who suffered for their faith. And verse th- three comes into bear. And what he's saying is, is there's a cost factor to being a Christian. There were those who were imprisoned for their faith. They went to prison because they stood up for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are blessed to live in America where that probably won't happen in this generation. It might. Who knows? But most of us here will never have to suffer in prison. But do we remember those overseas? Do we remember those 
and pray for them and ask God to be with them. Because many missions magazines keep us abroad of people in China and Muslim countries and South America and Iran and Iraq, and you know the stories. Could you just put a personal note in your notes this week just to pray specifically for those in prison for their faith? But notice what the last part of the verse says. Not only those who are in prison, but what does it also say? It says, for those who are mistreated, why do you remember them? Well, he tells you, he says, since you also are part of the body, remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them. Consider the suffering they're going through as you what might be yourself if you were there. And also, verse 3, for those who are mistreated. This would probably has more application to us here in the States. Your boss doesn't like you because you're a Christian. Your family says, I don't want to have anything to do with you because you're a Christian. You're a grandparent and your grown kids or your grandkids will be nice and come at Easter and Christmas, so they don't want to have anything to do with you when you talk about things of the faith, whatever it is. The point is, is that we are all in the body of Christ. And being in the body of Christ, we are suffering together. And by suffering together, we must remember. And that word remember has its root word in prayer. Are we remembering to pray for those? who are being mistreated and imprisoned around the world for their faith. Being a pastor in most countries not named America or Europe will often cost you a lot. Dare I say that, and you can argue the politics of this all day, I'm focused on what happened, but in Canada just a couple years ago, may we not forget that four or five sister churches, Baptist churches, mind you, pastors were thrown into prison for simply desiring with masks, with the social, the whole thing, with all the requirements of the day, they were thrown into prison, and some of them for many, many months. If you're not familiar with that, type in Canada Pastor Jail 2021 in Google and see what comes up. If we're willing to be thrown into prison, throw people into prison who are just simply trying to meet together, friends, your faith may someday be called to account for that very thing. It isn't now, but would you consider those who are there now? He says to serve sacrificially. Can I ask you, are you serving sacrificially with an open hand, an open heart, an open home? Is the presence of God, what he has done for you, that he's with you, that he's never leaving you nor forsake you, motivate you to do those things? Are you just an island over here doing your own Christian thing? You need to consider that. Second way he says God's uh, presence motivates us is to stay sexually stainless. Now, I'm going to say we have a lot of young years in this room and adults. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to speak it in such a way that uh, is truthful, but I also know we have a lot of young years in here. So I'm going to speak truth. I want you to know that. I'm not going to hold back from that by God's grace, but I also know there's a time and a place where these conversations can be done more uh, intimately and more uh, contextually to your family. So I want you to know that. But what I'm about to say, you need to hear. Now, how does he do this? He shifts from open hand, open heart, open home to now, oh, stay sexually stainless. Okay, Paul, that's like shifting gears a thousand times this way. Why is he saying this? He's saying this because they've lost everything. These Jews who are become Christians have lost everything. And their, their desire then would be to capitulate to the culture. Their desire would then be, well, since they don't accept me for my faith, maybe I just become and do what they do. And what did they do? 
Back in those days, many couples were living together, but they did so without marital responsibilities. In fact, it led to homosexuality, lesbianism, transvestitism, pornography, bestiality. You run the, the nasty list of things that we ought not to mention, and that culture in the first century was there. In fact, in the book of Corinth, you know the, the church at Corinthians, uh, at Corinth where we got the Corinthians, a thousand priests and priestesses were for hire to you to fulfill your spiritual and religious obligation in a sexual way. This is not written in a Victorian era moral restraint. This is a verse that itself where he is seeking to jerk their chain. He is seeking to come alongside of them and say, look, you do not go, you've lost your home, you've lost your family, do not go do what they do. Stay pure, especially sexually. It's like a fire within a chimney. Ha, some of y'all remember this. My, my, my Facebook reminded me personally that about seven or eight years ago, when we moved into our house, we had, a fire, we had some uh, soot in our fireplace. And I had to pick up Simeon from school, and I was the dummy that forgot to put the uh, filter on the back of the uh, uh, shop vac. And what happens when you start to suck things through a shop vac? What happens? You know, fiery stuff is great when it stays within the confines of a, of a, of a, of a, a, a fireplace, right? But when it gets out, it causes lots of damage, and especially fire can cause lots of damage. That's another story for another time. His whole point is stay focused. How do you stay focused with God's presence and motivated to honor him? Well, the first off, you do that you, by honoring marriage. He says, let the marriage bed be held among all. That among all was all the influences that were telling them, not only should you become part of the culture, but maybe you shouldn't marry after all. Look, let me be very clear here. Most of you are married, widow, or widowers. We have some single folks here, and that is fine. Single folks, I just want to remind you, you are not a second-class citizen because God has not brought you a significant other. Sometimes God does call in very rare circumstances, perhaps the Apostle Paul, Jesus himself being an example, to be celibate. But for most 99.9% .9 of people, he says it's better to marry than to burn, 1 Corinthians 7. What he's saying, though, is, is let the marriage be honored. I want to walk you through some different things. We're going to spend some time here. But I want to remind you what it is that we believe in marriage. So would you first off go to Genesis chapter 2 with me, please? Genesis chapter 2. Hold your spot in Hebrews 13, but go to Genesis chapter 2 and start in verse 19. Because if anything, if you're young, single, married, grandparent, parent, no parent, whatever you are, you need to be reminded what the Bible says about marriage and sex and the parameters around that. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 19. The first thing I want you to see is that marriage is in, always tied to our inadequacy. Marriage is always tied to our inadequacy. Verse 2 says this. He says, this is Moses recording it. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. This is not saying that single people are not fully human, though some churches put pressure on you to make you feel that way at times. I've felt that pressure before. But we do have a desire for one another. Adam was naming all the people, and he gave him that responsibility. He didn't give him a responsibility to get married right away. God is teaching Adam to trust him. And what this means is, is marriage is tied to our inadequacy, is that God will often, through your single years, teach you a lot about yourself so that you are aware and coming into marriage know exactly, 
Not exactly, but you have a good idea about where God may sharpen you and where you may need to be sharpened within that marriage. Humans are no mere animals, but being made in the image of God set us apart. Second thing I want you to see is that marriage is of God's design. That's the next blank, design. Marriage is God's design. Verse 20 said, The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. This shows us that God makes the woman while Adam was sleeping. It was all God's work, making it clear she was in no way inferior to man. She, too, was divinely created. God did not give Adam animals to get married to. He gave him a woman. Say, Darren, I came on Sunday morning to hear this. Yes, you did. And it gets better. Here we go. Marriage is also a relationship of companionship, of companionship. Man was alone and needed a suitable helper. The animals were not enough. The woman was taken from his side to show a suitable companion. You notice that he put him into a deep sleep. And what did he do? He didn't take it from his head or the ball of his feet. He took it from his his ribs. She wasn't taken from his head to rule over him or from his feet to be trampled under him. It was a relationship of companionship. But notice verse 23, marriage is also a relationship of attraction. Verse 23, and this is my interpretation, uh, it said, he says, the man said, this is last of my bones, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, Adam said, at last, a suitable helper. God blessed him. But you notice what the next verse says. It is, marriage is a relationship of attraction. But is there attraction in the proper thing? Adam did not have an attraction to animals or another man. He had an attraction to a woman. Marriage is also a relationship of authority. Ooh, that dirty word, authority, right? Guys, authority is not a dirty word. A TV is not necessarily bad. A cell phone is not necessarily bad. Satan has made authority a dirty word. Authority just simply means you're willing and humble enough to take orders. Every Christian is under the authority of who? The one who has all authority, Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. But you notice at the end of verse 23 what he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This hierarchy is in a result of the curse. Authority is inherent in the design before the fall. Adam named her woman before the fall. The man be created first implies that he is authority. After the first sin is recorded down in chapter 3, verse 9, God calls out to the man, implying his authority. Ladies, I want to be absolutely clear on this. I've said it a million times in this pulpit. You are not second-class citizens. God made man and woman, what? Equal. But God has called man and woman to different roles within the marriage. If you want to hear more about that, go to our website, towerviewkc.com. We preached on that back in, 20, I think, 2016, 2017. But notice it is also a particular union that happens here. God calls man and woman only to be together for life. He did not give him an out clause. He did not say to him, uh, he did not say to him, if you don't find her attractive anymore, if she gets a little uh, uh, big or, or he gets a little saggy, you can get rid of that person. There's a covenant language here. God's design isn't Adam in a relationship with another man or another animal. It is one woman, one man, where they become interdependent and they work together in union to glorify God. If I just shared that in most public schools, I would be booed off the stage or taken to an insane asylum. 
If there's anything you need to hear this morning, is to recalibrate yourself with what the Word of God says. But I want you to also see there in verse 24, marriage is also a public covenant, a public covenant. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and woman were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Marriage is a public covenant. And it is something that is brought here. God brought them together, and he has, if you will, a sort of marriage ceremony. A new family established. God didn't put a parent and a child in it together. He's emphasizing the importance of the marriage. If you're married today, can I just ask you, do you honor your marriage in that way? Go back to Hebrews. How are some ways you cannot honor your marriage? Go back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Say, Darren, we are definitely getting the fire hydrant approach today. I know you are. And there's no other way to preach this. I wanted to break this up into three or four sermons, and you could, but I want you just to know how it came at them. It's, it's coming at us. Go back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let the marriage be held among, honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. You need to stay sexually stainless in honoring marriage, but also by what I'm calling holy meetings. Holy meetings. Can I just be very simple and basic-minded here? This is the intimacy that is reserved only for marriage for those who are a man and a woman within the confines of marriage. Holy meetings. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says you should even give up uh, those meetings between a man and a woman within marriage for the sake of prayer. It's that important. But he says there are times when the bed will be undefiled. That word is used three times in the New Testament. It's used two in Hebrews, and it's speaking of two different groups. It's speaking of the sexually immoral. You see that there at the end of the verse. Those are people who are not married but are prom, uh, get a Tinder app or get, get on Facebook or Craigslist and find someone and, 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 and whatever and go off on their own merry way. This is speaking of the word, the King James Version. Brother Don, I think of you every time. The King James Version uses a really strong word here. You have King James. It says, the whoremongers. Does that sell it for you? Persons who indulge in sex outside of the marriage bond, heterosexual before or outside of marriage, heteros uh, homosexual, physical, whatever. It's unmarried people being impure before the Lord. Look, I will be completely honest with you. Back in the late 90s, I was part of what was called the purity culture. True Love Waits. You've heard of that before? True Love Waits. It was a great program. It tried to teach youth in Christian churches not to be promiscuous outside of marriage. But you know what? It taught a moral without telling you how it was connected to Jesus Christ. So we had a lot of people who were told, don't have sex outside of marriage, and praise God for that message. But they never connected it back to why Christ is holy, and he's exalted on his throne, and he sees all, and his presence is with you, as to not do those things. That's why at this church we don't just teach our kids and our adults good moral lessons. If you want to do that, go to a stump speech of some politician. Well, you probably won't even find it there, will you? You need to know that every command they give is connected because Christ died for your soul. He's greater than everybody. And that's what the book of Hebrews is saying. Doctrine, devotion. Hebrews 1 to 12, Hebrews 13. But he also says they're the adulteress. These are people who are married. These are people who, who, who were married and, and going outside the marriage bonds. The Old Testament said that was even grounds for death. So why do you have these holy meetings? Why do you consummate your marriage only within the confines of marriage? You've probably written these down already. First off, because it fulfills God's will. He told them to do that in Genesis. He told them to fulfill the, the, the joy it is for a husband and a wife to come together. 
but it also is called to populate the earth. We joke about this all the time, right? Why'd you get married? Well, you can have kids and populate the earth, and they can you know, do all sorts of fun things for you. But Brother Brian is right. Psalm 127, children are a gift from the Lord. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children in, the, in one's youth. But also, why do you have children? And I'll admit, we are coming to this at different angles as we work through our family dynamics. It's to make disciples for Jesus Christ. Grandkids, kids, here today, our desire for you is that you would walk in faithfulness to Jesus Christ for the rest of your life. Adults who have grandkids or you have, you have kids or whatever it is, that's your prayer for every kid that you know, isn't it? That they would walk with Christ. But this marriage is also a picture of Christ in the church, Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm just going to say, uh, and I, I put this in my notes specifically, but uh, if you are a fan of the website, the Gospel Coalition, they have a lot of good things. You don't know what that is. It's a good resource. But this week, they took that analogy too far. There was a pastor who took all these references we're talking about between Christ and the church and took it too far that every pastor in America who read it said, take it down, and they did. There's a picture of Christ in the church. Paul says it's a mystery, and he leaves it there, the details of which are not given to us. But the marriage itself is a picture of the bride of Christ, the church, and the groomsman, Christ coming. Stay sexually stainless. Why? Look at the end of verse 4. What is God going to do, church? What's it say? He's going to judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. I'm going to raise my voice for a second in a whisper. Some of the most severe punishments in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation 22, you name it, Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, are reserved for those who are sexually immoral and don't care a thing about it. Every porn actress in California or Nevada, every prostitute walking the streets, every married man who looks at a screen and has images come up and cheats on his wife when she's not looking, every woman who flirts with a man on an app or a text message innocently and ends up doing something they shouldn't. The Bible is very clear that God is a God of grace and mercy, but I'm here to tell you today, if you are tempted to walk in this way, run, 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 run. There are pastors. You know what the greatest fall of every pastor is in this country? is sexual immorality. You know what the fall of Solomon was? It wasn't Solomon's lack of wisdom. If there's anything he had, he at least had that going for him, even though he didn't practice it. He loved women. Can I just tell you that many people will say, only God can judge me and live like he won't. Friends, I need to warn you today. I don't care if you're 75 years old or you're 17 years old in here. You need to know that God commands and demands sexual purity amongst his people. Guys, if you have a smartphone and a computer and you do not have software that can cut that off, if you get tempted to go to a website, you need to install that right away. Ladies, if you need help with that, come talk to myself, Brian, Pastor Nelson. We can hook you up. I want you to know that. Guys, I'm speaking to guys because I'm a guy. If you don't look at your wife or your uh, whatever and see her as more beautiful as the years go by, then you need to check your heart. If you're a widow or a widower here and your heart burns to be married, then you need to pray and trust that to the Lord. But don't go off in a way that's going to get you in trouble like this says. God will judge the immoral and the wicked. Well, well, didn't, didn't David have all these concubines? 
Sometimes things are descriptive in the Bible and not prescriptive. Just because David did that does not mean you do it as well. And guys, I pray, and I just want to say this word before I move to the last point. If you're here today and you have sinned in a sexual way and you feel like that lady in the red scarlet, uh, what was that, the scarlet letter, excuse me, uh, that old book, and you feel like there's so much shame about you, I want you to know, first off, if you are feeling shame, you take that to the Lord God yourself and go to him first. And you read Psalm 51 and confess your sin to God first. But I want you to know, the verses that we read in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. If you come to us and say, I have struggled, I've cheated, I've, I've seen pictures, I've whatever, 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 we're going to work with you through that. And we can't take away every consequence that comes as a result of that. But I want you to know you are loved here, you are cared for here, and there is a home for you here. Don't let your shame drive you away from the people of God. Let them love you tenderly. I would almost guarantee if the stats are true, that two-thirds of you in this room have been abused sexually in some way. As an adult, most likely as a kid, you are safe here. That's why we background check people. We can't prevent everything. But I want you to know, if you have struggled sexually, you are not alone. God is with you, and you have a community here who will rally behind you. Not to take away consequences. We can't do that but we can wrap around you and say, we will walk with you through whatever comes, should you be willing. Does that make sense? Our Southern Baptist Convention, and I will move on, our Southern Baptist Convention, not all churches, but for years has hid sexual abuse amongst its members. May God forgive us, and may it never happen here at Tyreview Baptist Church. May we stay sexually sinless to God's glory. Lastly is this. Not only should we stay sexually stainless, that we should also serve sacrificially, but God's presence, finally, we should seek spiritual satisfaction. We should seek spiritual satisfaction. He's calling them not to be like the culture, to have open hands, open hearts, to stay away from the things of the world in a sexual manner. But now he comes to one, if we're honest, hits us right in the checkbook. Yes, it does. In America, there are three classes of people, the haves, the have-nots, and the have-not-paid for what they have. <laughs> it took me a while to come up with that one, so I hope you enjoy that, because I know we needed a tra- I needed a transition from verse 4 to verse 5. But one of the greatest sins that we live in our culture today is the love of money. People today are buying things they don't need with money they don't have to look like people they don't even like. And that is the truth of the matter. Look... As he gets down to this, Jeremiah Burroughs, Brother Willie, my former pastor, is not here today, but he would tell you one of the greatest books you can read, one of the non-Bible books you can read, you can write this down, is called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. That's a mouthful. Jeremiah Burroughs is the old dead guy. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And because he writes about what it is to not love money and to love God. So what does the writer tell him here? Don't go to sexual sin to find your fulfillment. Go to the people of God. Seek them. They, they understand your persecution. They understand your loss. They understand your families have had funerals for you. Even though you're not dead, you're dead to them. So what do you need to do now? He encourages them in their persecution, first off, to avoid coveting. To avoid coveting. He says, free, excuse me, flee from the love of what? Of money. Money corrupts your priorities, your desires. It corrupts your heart. It severs relationships. 
It, it, he says, literally, keep it free from you. It, keep it devoid of you. The New King James says it's, it's covetousness. It's not an issue of the pocketbook. As always, it's an issue of the heart. It doesn't say keep money out of your bank account. It doesn't say not work hard to buy nice things. It doesn't say that you can't have a 401k. It says flee from the love of money. It's a perspective. It's a coveting. It's a coveting thing. That's that 10th commandment. You should not covet your neighbor's wife, ox, donkey, or anything. It's a point of the heart. And it is a lie to think that apart from the Lord, you can ever truly be secure. I mean, isn't that why you save and work all those years so you can be financially secure in your golden years? Because that happens all the time, right? Matthew 6, 19, do not store for yourselves treasures in earth, on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Luke 12, 15, be aware and be on guard against every form of greed. 1 Timothy 6, 10, the love of money is the root of all what? Evil. Oh, there's a translation differences coming through. All sorts of evil. Not evil itself, but all sorts of evil. The point is, is that the poor man can, can love money just as much as the rich man can. And so can the middle class person. Oh, honey, do you, know what, do you know what the wife of that other person got the other day? I think I need that too. Or as one, per, one friend of ours says, they love Amazon shopping because they, they just order things and boxes show up at their house. They don't even remember what they ordered anymore. I mean, that's just kind of how it goes. Surprise. Do you love money? Are you coveting what God has given other people or are you content with what you have? He says, avoid coveting. He says also, accept content. How do you seek spiritual satisfaction? By accepting contentment. He says very clearly here, be content with what you have. He doesn't say be content with who you are. Note that difference there. This does not say that if you look like me and are a wiry figure, that if you want to have you know, big builder, muscle builders, that as long as you're seeking the Lord and glorifying him through it, there's nothing wrong with that. If you have a belly and you want to have a six-pack, go for it. It's not saying be con- that's superficial stuff. Physical training is of some value, Paul said, but spiritual things of our eternal value. He's not saying be content with who you are in Christ. You should be. Jesus has given you his all. He saved you, but that shouldn't stop you from growing. Note what he says. Be content with what you have. In other words, in God's plan, he's given you gifts, and what he's given you is exactly what you need. If you lack contentment today, start naming everything you don't deserve. What is that old song that says, count your blessings, name them one by one, count your blessings, help me out here, see see what God has done. As simple as that is, why do you do that? Because as Paul said in Philippians 4.13, when you are content, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, you can't go lift the, the, the Empire State Building. No, you can't run a marathon if you can't take a step. It's not what he's saying. But Philippians 4.13, the most, taken, most Bible verse taken out of context ever probably, reminds us that we can be content because Christ is with us. The secret to contentment is knowing Christ, knowing whose you are and what he has done for you. Dare I remind you that Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 loved money so much that God killed them for it? It literally cost them. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, godliness is a means of great gain and is accompanied, it says, by contentment. How do you stay spiritually satisfied? You accept contentment. You also go through and you affirm your confidence. And we will close with this. Look at the end of verse 6. 
he says, so we can confidently say, your Bible may have something there, but I want you to know if you could put on your Greek glasses for a minute, this is said five times in the negative. He literally says, the Lord is my helper. I will not, will not, will not three times. That's the Greek. It gets translated one time, but he emphasizes it three. I will not, will not, will not fear for what can man do to me? Literally what? It's a negative. Can't do it. God reminds you five times to trust in him and find your greatest pleasure in him. John Piper, the old, uh, old curmudgeon kind of pastor, and he's getting old and set in his ways, pastor as he calls himself, reminds us that we are most satisfied in God. We are most satisfied in God. Help me out here, Ben. I forgot the quote, and it just slipped my head. We are most satisfied in him when we are, uh, I just lost it. I did too. Forget it. He said something really famous. <laughs> That's one of those ones that pops in and it doesn't quite get there. Church, I just want to tell you as we close this out, the reason these Christians had their confidence was is because God was with them every step of the way. When Brian led us in worship this morning with the worship team, you heard that theme in the songs. You heard it in the Psalms that were read. He's with you. When this world takes everything from you and tries to make you part of it, if you simply hold on to Christ, you have more than the world could ever give you. That is enough. I pray this church grows spiritually. May God grow it physically, perhaps someday. But the greatest growth we have is if everything were stripped out of here and these buildings were torn down and some of you were saying, a prayer request has been answered, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Whatever God brings this church, if we have this one truth, we hold to Jesus, we are always in good cahoots. How ironic that the most hammered and hated people are the most happy people in Jesus Christ. These Christians were going through the ringer, but they were the most joyous Christians. Friend, whatever you're facing this morning, God will meet your needs. Don't cave into peer pressure. He is willing, he is able. That is three sermons in one. If you haven't felt that I have, I'm tired and ready for a nap. Are you? But God be praised. Our goal over the next several weeks is to make it through the book of Hebrews. We'll have some transition time in uh, April to preach through some various things, probably connecting to what I'm about to say. But we do anticipate starting the book of Revelation sometime in the middle of May. So there you go. But I want you to know, Without Christ, life is meaningless. Will you pray with me? Let's go before the Lord. Father, as we fire hydrant this approach this morning, and indeed it was, we recognize as well that the word of God often comes at us like that water coming out of a hydrant. It comes fast and furious without much filter, without much stopping. But Lord, we're grateful because we know as we seek to live for you, to not walk alone, to be motivated by your presence. We do need to serve sacrificially. We need to stay uh, sexually stainless, and we need to seek spiritual satisfaction only in you. Father, for all the various parts that are in these verses that we read today, would you just simply remind us that you are enough? Father, we can't just camp out in a, in a, as a hermit somewhere and just read our Bible all day and pray, as good as those are. You call us to be in the world, not of the world. But may we, like these early Christians, as we may suffer for our faith, as we may suffer and be mistreated, even imprisoned, be reminded that you're always with us. You will always guide us. What a prayer for our church as well. 
No matter what lies ahead, the gates of hell will not prevail so long as our trust and your presence lead us on. We love you, Lord. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.